this section here, from verse 18 forward, and really this whole story, but especially this here, this is the pinnacle of the book of Exodus. This is the final climax. From here, everything is, is not, not downhill in a bad way, but downhill as in the story is, has more or less resolved itself. That the Exodus will be officially complete. The covenant will have been made and solidified with the Lord and the children of Israel. Because not only does God agree to stay with the people, which we saw last time, but God reveals his glory to Moses on the mountain. And that phrase, which is our title tonight, and it's one of the first things Moses is going to say, show me your glory. We hear an awful lot today in the church. It's in a lot of our songs. It's in a lot of sermons. It's in a lot of uh, popular religion, especially more towards the charismatic side of things. And I think that's a good thing. You can get really down on that and say, well, that was a special thing that God did for Moses. Well, yes, but it's also supposed to be an example for us, as we're going to see. But we do need to understand what that means. When you're asking for God to show you his glory, and also we need to know that what it costs to see the glory of the Lord, because there is a cost, as we will see. And of course, ultimately, the glory of the Lord is revealed in Christ Jesus. That's where we see, as John says in John 1, the fullness of the glory of God in Christ. And that is true, and we cannot forget that. And we say, well, how come Moses got to see God like this, and I don't? Well, you get to know the testimony and story of Jesus Christ. That's greater than anything Moses encountered. That said, we also have a much higher ceiling on our experience with God than Moses ever did because of what Jesus has done. And passages like this are not just calling us to seek the Lord intellectually, but to seek to encounter and experience the Lord in a very real and tangible way. As it says in Hosea chapter 6, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And we're going to look at how Moses did it and use it as our example tonight. Let's read verse 18 down to verse 23. This is, of course, in the middle of what Moses is already saying to the Lord. In verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that is the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Some wild stories in the Old Testament, aren't there? This is right after the golden calf. Moses went up the mountain, received the the law, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and comes down to find the people worshiping a golden cow in orgiastic revelry, before the Lord, as they said. Moses, of course, had to smash the golden calf, force the people to drink the bitter water. The tablets were broken. They even had to put to death thousands of the people in order to put a stop to it. Well, now Moses has entered that tent of meeting. I believe last time I said he went back up the mountain. That actually hasn't happened yet. Right now he's in that tent of meeting, which is outside the camp where the people used to watch him go in and the glory of the Lord would follow him there. And he's begging God to stay with them. Because remember, God said, I'll take you to the promised land, but I'm going to send an angel. I'm not going with you because if I stay with you, y'all going to be dead. Because I can't put up with you and your stiff necks, as he said. 
But Moses interceded for the Lord, for the people before the Lord, and God agreed to go with them. All right, Moses, I will go with you just as I've always said. Then in verse 18, Moses ups the ante. And if you're taking notes, here's our first thing. Moses makes an audacious request. And he asks to see the glory of the Lord. And that just sounds very wonderful and spiritual and religious, doesn't it? Show me your glory, God. Well, let's take a minute and think about what that means. The word for glory is kavod in Hebrew. And it's from the word that means heavy. doesn't mean heavy. It's, it's a related word. That means heavy, like the weight. We talk about sometimes the weight of God's glory. That's because those two words are related to each other. And it describes the splendor or the honor or the brilliance of God's presence. If you've ever watched like an old sword and sandals movie like Ben-Hur or something, and you see the procession of Caesar through Rome where there's the chariots and there's the flowers being thrown in the air and there's the music and here comes Caesar. It's the glory. You're seeing how glorious he is. We talk about an athlete or we talk about a, a warrior winning glory in battle as the people chant his name and cheer for him and he jumps up and dunks the football over the, over the uprights, right? That's glory. And specifically in the Bible, it refers to being in God's presence and seeing, it's often described as shining light, brilliant, or very thick darkness and clouds, which is another way of describing it. So knowing what glory means... What exactly is he asking here? Because Moses has already seen that glory of God several times. He saw him at the burning bush. That was a glorious appearance of the Lord. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. He also saw him at Mount Sinai, where the Lord descended, and there was thunder and lightning and fire. And the passage doesn't tell us when that ceased. It seems to be still going on, as far as we can tell. But at the very least, it happened at the beginning. But this seems to be something different. We know that when he was in the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire came and moved to be in the tent with Moses. And it says God spoke to him face to face. So what does Moses mean when he says, show me your glory? It's obviously related to the request he's making, which is stay with us, Lord. But I can see this as not specifically referring to that anymore. God has just agreed, I will go with you, Moses. I will not leave your people. Imagine the relief that Moses would have felt. He's in the tent. He's been praying on his face. These people were idolaters. You could probably hear them weeping and wailing outside the tent. Finally, God concedes and says, all right, Moses, I will go with you. Imagine the relief that covers him. And he's there experiencing the glory of the Lord in an amazing way. And he's just overwhelmed and wants more of God. Show me your glory. Even in the amazing things Moses had already seen, he knew there was more. He knew there was a a level to which he had not gone yet. And in verse 20 here, God says, you cannot see my face. So that seems to be what Moses is asking for. I want a full, unfiltered, unveiled view of your face, O God. I know that you're holding back. I want to see all of it. That's what Moses was after. Now, John, in John chapter 1, verse 18, is going to write, no one has ever seen God. But in verse 14 of that chapter, he says that in Jesus, the word became flesh, we beheld his glory. 
So the person, the, the literal manifestation of God has not been seen by anybody, but God has revealed his glory in many ways, most importantly in Christ Jesus. And Moses is asking to see the real deal. Now God tells Moses, Moses, I love you. You're my guy, but I can't show you all that. Not because I won't, because you can't handle it. You know, if I were to show you my full glory, you wouldn't be able to, to live. No one can see my face and live. So here's what he says. I'll show you as much as I can. He says, up where I am, there's a little place in the rock. And you go and you wait in that rock. And I will pass by in my full glory. And I'll cover your eyes with my hand, like a little kid, right? I'll cover your eyes with my hand. And then when I've passed by, I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back. Now, these are anthropomorphisms. The Bible says God is invisible. God is spirit. We do not believe that God actually has hands and a back and everything like that, except as he reveals himself in that way. So we talk about seeking God's face. God goes, I can't show you my face. How about I show you my back? How about I show you a diminished version which would still be wonderful. It says, I will pass by and declare my goodness and my name. That's what God's going to do. What a miraculous thing to experience. To have the actual, vibrant, fiery presence of God pass through this room. And God says ahead of time, everybody get under the chairs and cover your eyes. Then when I've passed through, then you can look and you'll see the trailing end of my glory. And I'll announce my name and my ways to you. That's a pretty miraculous thing to experience, isn't it? Moses had some guts to ask for that, didn't he? I want it all, Lord. I want to see every part of you. I've seen the fire on the mountain. I've seen the burning bush. I've seen the cloud. I've even eaten in your presence and seen you seated above the sapphire glass. But I want more. Let me see your whole glory. And God goes, I can't show you my whole glory. Let me see. I'll show you as much as I can, as much as you can handle. This kind of encounter with God is not only possible, but of course it is because we're about to see it, but it's a desirable thing. It's important for us to know this. Not only is it desirable for us to see God, to see as much of God as we can, but it's desirable for God too. God doesn't rebuke Moses here. God never rebukes people who come to him with audacious acts of worship. Think of Mary who broke that alabaster flask that was worth about a year's salary to anoint Jesus' feet. He says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Psalm 27, verse 8. The psalmist writes, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So you've got two people speaking in there. First is God. And what does God say? Seek my face. That's a commandment. So this whole idea of seeking God's face, I think is probably related to what Moses is asking for here. Seek after it, desire it. That's God saying it to you. It says, desire to know me and talk to me like Moses knew me and talked to me. And the psalmist then is the second person who speaks responding and says, yes, Lord, your face will I seek. You've got to know that this is of God or else we can get very stuffy and pseudo-spiritual. And say, oh, it's not godly to desire encounters with the Lord. I remember a few years ago, a lot of people got on certain songs that were being written, like, you know, I want to see you, Lord. I want to know you. And it's like, well, you think that it's about all about seeing God and knowing God? What's wrong with the Bible? 
Well, the Bible said, seek the Lord's face. That's, that's the thing here. That, that, well, God is so great, we could never touch him. That's pseudo-spirituality. Because God says, seek my face. Come after me. He says, you'll find me in the secret place. This is God's desire. So then, if we want to catch a glimpse of God's glory, like Nacho Libre, remember? Don't you want a little taste of the glory? That's a Daniel Henderson joke. If you don't know who that is, I stole that from him. If you want a little taste of the glory, what are we going to do? If we want to know God that way, if you want to encounter God as much as possible, if you want to encounter the Lord, not talking about, oh, I learned something new in the Bible, but encounter and experience God in a way that you never have before, what do we got to do? Well, let's look at Moses and his audacious request. And I'll break this down into two parts. Number one, Moses had a thirst for the presence of God. The person of God. He wanted to know the Lord. Nothing was more important to him than knowing and seeing and encountering God. And number two, he had the gumption to ask for it. To ask for such a revelation. He didn't sit back with this pharisaical, I wouldn't deign to dare to ask the Lord for such a thing. Moses says, get out of my way. I'll ask for such a thing. I want to see your glory, Lord. So look at those things. Number one, he had a thirst for the person. If you want to see God, you cannot be just going after an experience. Experiences are cheap. You can go to a concert, you can go to a club, you can take a drug, you can get drunk, you can do all sorts of things to have a spiritual experience. You've got to be desirous of God himself, caught up in the person of Jesus Christ. When you come to the Lord and you start to pray, and you start to ask, as your heart begins to think on him and his threeness and his oneness and his glory and his kindness and his wrath and his mercy, and you become overwhelmed, that's when you're beginning to have the right attitude. That it is you and God, that personal relationship that we love to talk about. It's a good thing to talk about if you have one, to know God personally, like Moses did. And secondly, to have the gumption to ask for it. God loves to honor those that make wild requests of him. You know, remember when, when James and John came and said, Lord, we want to be one on your right hand and one on your left hand. Jesus didn't get in their face and say, how dare you ask for such a thing? He goes, are you, are you really know what you're asking for? Yeah, we're up for it, Lord. He goes, yeah. Yeah, actually, you are going to be baptized with my baptism, but I, I can't give that to you. It's not up to me. The Lord loves it. What about when Peter said, Lord, if that's you, let me come and walk on the water. Jesus didn't say, Peter, stay in the boat. This is about me and my glory. Don't you know that? He said, all right, come on, come on out. And then Peter sinks and he goes, why did you doubt? You asked. I said, yes. Why were you doubting? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Those two things in tandem, God can't resist God can't resist a person who is thirsty for his person and who has the gumption to ask. Paul had those things. He said, I have counted all things as loss for the upward call of knowing God in Christ Jesus. And Paul saw things. He said, they're so wonderful, it wouldn't even be right for me to tell you about them. Elijah had those things. Elijah stepped out and sort of put God on the spot an awful lot, didn't he? He stands out and says, it's not going to rain for three years unless I say so. God goes, okay, you better come out to the desert so I can teach you a few things. He's the one that poured water on the sacrifice, remember? David had those things. John the Baptist had those things. What about you? Do you have an insatiable thirst for the 
person of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit. Not just the power of the Spirit, not just the sense of His presence, but Him, Himself. Do you want to hear His voice like Paul and James and Peter heard His voice? If so, then you're ready to make that audacious request like, show me your glory. Well, God agreed. So let's look at this. Chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. He had broken the first, if you remember. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is one of the most remarkable things in the whole Bible. He says, all right, make two new tablets. They're going to reestablish the covenant. He had broken the first two. Some have put it out there as a fit of rage that Moses kind of snapped him over his knee because he was angry. I don't, I don't really see that. It seems more like a symbolic thing that he was doing and, and probably was needed to be done. But he's going to make two new tablets. Goes up the mountain alone. No Joshua this time. No doubt he would have consecrated himself as he had to the first few times. And then early in the morning. So Moses would have been going up this mountain while it's still dark. Knowing that he's going to see the glory of the Lord. He's got the tablets in his arms. And he's walking up this mountain and he can see the sun start to come up over the horizon. And it kind of goes from dark to gray. And he can feel that, that cool morning air starting to come. And comes up to the place where he had met God before. And there's the cleft of the rock. And he goes and, and he settles down in it and waits. And then when the sun comes up, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud. And Moses, here's our second point, was given a glorious revelation of God himself, which surpassed all experiences anybody had had to date and would probably surpass most of them until the Mount of Transfiguration while Jesus was on the earth. In fact, it might be a fun study for you to go and compare this story with that story because there are a lot of similarities. The pillar of cloud filled the area. Now, this is what Moses was used to, but God is, is remember, peeling back the layers here. The pillar of cloud filled the area, and based on what we know of God's presence, every time we've seen it described, they're always using images of jewels and ice and gems and gold and light and thunder. It would have been brilliant and dazzling, and God announced his name and his goodness to Moses, his name and his character. And this passage 
is foundational in Scripture. You will see these words quoted or alluded to over and over and over again. You must know this passage in order to put that together. Especially in the Psalms, you'll see this a lot. Anytime it says the Lord is abounding in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, that's, that's a reference to this here. The fullest revelation of God we've received up to this time in salvation history. So let's walk through this. Number one, first, twice he says, the Lord. And this is that tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Jehovah is another way it's been vocalized. It's usually said Adonai in Hebrew out of respect for the name of God. The Lord. You'll see it's all capitals in that verse. The Lord, the Lord. He says it twice. It means I am. It's a reference to divine aseity. That God is self-existent. He exists on his own. He has no origin. He has no beginning. He exists by definition. The Lord, his covenant name. Second, he identifies himself as God. A God. And this is incredible because we know he's the only God. But in this way, he asserts himself. He's lifting up a challenge to these other so-called false gods that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus. That's been a, a minor theme, but it's been a running theme throughout Exodus that God is not just declaring war on Pharaoh or, or Canaan or the Amalekites, but against the false gods of these lands. So he's establishing himself. He's bursting back on the scene in the book of Exodus. And he's going to tell us what kind of God he is. He is merciful and gracious. I wish I'd written them down, but these two words in Hebrew rhyme with one another. And you can, you can try to split the difference, merciful and gracious. But in Hebrew, they both contain the connotation of compassion or love. So the first aspect of God's character that he reveals to Moses is his love, his mercy, and his grace. So in 1 John 4, verse 8, when he says God is love, he wasn't making that up. This is what God has been revealing about himself since the beginning, that God is love. And you ask, well, what about his wrath? Oh, he's a wrathful God, but what does he say? He is slow to anger. His wrath is real. His wrath is terrible. It's revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, but it is not hasty. It's not impulsive. God has never had an outburst of wrath, ever. Isn't that nice to know? Haven't you ever had a moment where you say, why did I blow up in that moment? If I had just been a little slower to anger, that situation probably would have worked itself out. God never blows up in anger. He's good. He's just, but he's not harsh. That's so good for us to know. He's abounding. That word means overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. That word for steadfast love is translated mercy in some of the older translations. It's translated love in some others because this is the, the Hebrew word chesed. And it's, it's one of those tough to nail down in English. We have a lot of words that, that could make that word, but none that are one-for-one one correlation. It's got the idea of grace and forgiveness carries the idea of love. It also carries the idea of relationship and covenant faithfulness. So it's not just love. It's not just mercy, but it's, it's continued and ongoing love and faithfulness. When you're in a relationship with the Lord, he's going to keep it. He's going to maintain that relationship. And he's faithful, meaning he doesn't change in any of this stuff. That's so important to know. Oh, God is loving and he's gracious and he's kind. But, you know, he's also, he's also a little flaky. He'll change. You never know what he's going to be this time. Maybe he'll decide he wants to be angry and grumpy tomorrow. No, he's faithful. 
His love is for thousands. And that seems to be, although it's not in the text, counterbalanced to later when he'll say third or fourth generation. This is thousands of generations or thousands of people, meaning God does not limit his love. He says, I don't, I don't just pick my favorites and the rest of you, it doesn't matter. And that is shown most of all in forgiving iniquity. Don't let anybody tell you that the New Testament God is not the same as the Old Testament God. That Old Testament God is mean and full of judgment and wrath, and the New Testament Jesus is nice and forgives all of our sins. That was one of the first heresies in the early church. There was a guy named Marcion who said we shouldn't read the Old Testament or any New Testament books that quote the Old Testament too much because it's two different gods. Wrong. Right here in the Lord's name and character, he says, I forgive iniquity. And of course, he provides the other half to this, but he almost seems to rush through it. It's his justice against evil. By no means clearing the guilty. I'll offer forgiveness and compassion and kindness, but don't ever think that means that I overlook evil. That's the difference between God and Santa Claus. Santa Claus, oh, everybody's pretty nice. I guess they've all been good. No, the Lord is also just. And he sees unrighteousness and cannot allow it to continue. He does not clear the guilty. Exercising judgment to the third and fourth generation. Now that's a passage that's been misapplied and abused so many times to teach things like generational curses that if your granddaddy was a, was a sinner, then you maybe need to go and get that curse removed. And even though the Bible says that Jesus has taken every curse for us on the tree. But what he's saying is, I execute judgment. And, I, and I, if I execute judgment against one person, the reverberations of that judgment will carry down for generations. You see this all around you. That when God judges a nation, the children and the grandchildren, and even the next generations, it, it takes a while to recover from what God has done. This is not to say that God punishes the next generation for what the previous one did. Read Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 18. It's a good, good mature topic to discuss. That God says, I execute judgment, and it even affects the families for generations, but anybody who repents and comes to me, I will forgive them. He makes that very clear. Because the people during the exile were saying, we're being kicked out of Jerusalem for all the things our parents did. And God goes, am I that kind of God to do that to you? If you would repent, I'd forgive you, but you haven't repented, so don't come to me and say that my ways are not just. So when we look at this God, what else can Moses do but fall on his face in worship? So I guess he was in the cleft of the rock, and perhaps that, that cloud itself, maybe that was the hand of God, so to speak, that was, that was covering his eyes. That God was passing by, but he was concealed by the cloud, but Moses could catch glimpses of it. But when he hears the Lord announcing his name and his voice, the Bible says, it's like the sound of many rushing waters. He falls down to the ground and worships. And he begs God, even though God has already said, I will stay with you and I'm not going to break my covenant. Now that Moses has seen what God is really like, he says, oh Lord, you, you can't leave. We need you. We need you to be with us. If you don't go, what's the point? The pinnacle of human experience is to know and to see God as he is. That's what we lost in the Garden of Eden. The Lord would walk with Adam in the cool of the day. Adam had a standing appointment with God. And the one day he missed it was the day we lost it forever. When he entered into sin. And now we're all living the consequences of that. But that has been restored in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus took all the penalties on the cross. And we're going to read later in 2 Corinthians 3 how he talks about now our view of God is even clearer than that of Moses. Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul said, May you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a phrase for you. To be filled with all the fullness of God. You think to yourself, could I even hold all the fullness of God? And I say, well, give me as much as I can, Lord. The New Testament and the Old both lead us to chase after God's face and His presence. Too much of our religion and our prayer and our songs consists of chasing the blessings of God. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. I'm believing that this check will increase. I'm believing that rent's going to come through. I believe for the healing of the body. Oh, that's wonderful. Those are all great things, but they're lesser things. Chasing after signs that we're trying to whip up the meeting, we're trying to encounter God, not so that we can encounter God, but because we might see somebody get healed, and that would be really cool. Jesus said, a foolish and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Or we're seeking after success. God, bless this ministry, grow it, make it big, make it wonderful. God wants to do all that. But that's not why we seek the Lord. We don't seek God so that we can be great. John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Or knowledge. We just come to God because we have a desire for knowledge. We just want to know. We want to be able to understand. We want to be able to articulate the depths and the mysteries of the universe. You got some people that come at this from a very academic perspective. They just want to read all the books and all the theologians and systematize it all. And you got other people that come at it from a very weird, almost occult perspective. Where they're like, I want to have the special knowledge of God that no one else has. So I don't read my Bible so much. I just spend time kind of listening to the vibrations, man. That's not what it's all about. Or experiences. Just say, I, I, I love the Holy Spirit because he makes those meetings really lively. Well, the Corinthians had a lot of lively meetings. They also had a lot of sin. And Paul had to correct it and put a lid on it. We miss Christ himself amidst his works. We spend so much time enjoying all of the benefits of being a Christian that we miss the one whose names we take when we call ourselves a Christian. Jesus himself. Remember the story of the 10 lepers in Luke 17? Jesus healed 10 lepers. Nine of them ran to the priest to go show themselves so that they could be formally approved to come back into society. But one of them, the Samaritan, the double outcast, when he realized that he had been healed, he went back to Jesus to thank him. And Jesus goes, where's the other nine? Didn't I heal ten of y'all? Where are the other guys? For them, the blessing of being healed was more important than knowing the one who had healed them. For that man, he said, this is great that I've been healed and I can't wait to see my family again. But I dare not move on without going back to stay close to the one that cleansed me in the first place. Who brought me back from a living death. I'm going to go know him. The man that was healed of his blindness, when they brought him before the Sanhedrin, they were grilling him with all these questions. He said, you need to testify that this man is a sinner. We know what he teaches. We know what he does. The man said, I don't know anything about him. But you know what I do know? I was blind, and now that I see. When he saw Jesus again, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He goes, tell me who he is so I can go believe in him. If you say it, then I'll believe it, and I'll do it. 
And Jesus said, I'm the son of man. And he fell down at his feet and worshiped because knowing Jesus was a greater prize than remaining in the synagogue, which they kicked him out of because he wouldn't stop talking about the one who had healed him. It's knowing Christ himself. There are glorious revelations awaiting for you and for me, but they are not a means to some end or other. God is the end of all of our seeking and striving in prayer. To know God himself. And the more you know him, the more your desires will be shaped so that you'll no longer want those things. Those things will seem less important to you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you find the Lord, you will be compelled to leave your nets behind and follow him, however full they may have been that day. It's about knowing God himself. Maybe you need to adjust your prayer and your worship accordingly. Verses 10 through 28 now. Long section here. So Moses has just seen the Lord. He's asked him, Lord, please don't abandon your covenant. Go with us. And in verse 10, the Lord said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. On all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. I want to underline that. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Something else to underline and ponder there. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Well, here God restores the covenant. 
This is not so much God creating something new as restoring what had been broken through the golden calf and their abandonment of the covenant. And he gives them a shortened list of promises and commandments. You can compare this with chapter 23. It's a much longer, more detailed description, but it's essentially the same, the same thing. Our third point, when we seek God and we find him, we experience a gracious restoration, as Moses did here. And he begins by promising to drive out the Canaanites and to do mighty wonders in Israel's midst. He says, I'm going to do things that nobody's ever seen. And your Bible is full of those kinds of stories. Joshua at one point will pray and ask the Lord to make the sun stand still. And God's going to answer that. Now tied to that is a warning against idolatry. The children of Israel had just shown themselves to be rather susceptible to that. They couldn't even wait until they left Mount Sinai. So he says, you're not to destroy just the people, but also their gods. Now, when you think about that, we think, well, yeah, that's easy. Just, you know, you see a statue, throw it down. You've got to consider, this is God telling them every official building, every beautiful thing they've made, every monument, every wonder of the world you find there. I don't care how wonderful or splendid or glorious, I want it destroyed. I don't care how appealing it is to you. I don't care if it would make a great spot or if you just love the art and architecture are so wonderful. He says, raise it to the ground. He says, they're they're gods and they're Asherim. Asherah was the goddess, the female consort of Baal. And the Asherim, Im, makes it plural. And uh, they were the goddesses, the, the harem goddesses of whatever god they worshipped. And there was all manner of sexual immorality associated with that. So the Lord is telling them all of it. Don't, don't read between the lines. Because the Asherim were worshipped not with golden statues, but with carved totem poles. Very similar. Or, or groves. Well, this isn't a carved image. God's like, you get the point. All of it. I want it gone. He compares himself to a husband. And God, in, in this verse, says, my name is Jealous. And we sing all those songs about God's names and how one, oh, El Shaddai and Jehovah Rapha and Jealous. Later on in Nahum, he'll say, I am God the Avenger. I don't know how I feel about that one either. But that's our God. And this is not the kind of jealousy that causes one, one boyfriend to beat on his girlfriend and say, I don't want you talking to other guys. This is the kind of jealousy that rises up in your heart that says, no, you can't share my wife. No, you can't share my husband. You want your spouse to be a little jealous of you, don't you? Say, I don't really care what you do. It's like, uh, What? <laughs> What are you doing then if that's what, you, that's what you're saying? I'm a jealous God, he says. I love you and I'm not going to share you with anybody else. He calls idolatry harlotry, whoredom. The book of Hosea will make a, a great metaphor and, and picture out of that. Over and over again, God will, will, will call them adulterers, call them whores for going after these other gods. And then he runs through the list of of commands, which we've gone through in great detail. You can go back and listen if you haven't heard them. But he reminds them about the festivals, the devotion of the firstborn, the Sabbath day, some laws about the sacrifices, and and that commandment about the young goats again, which is just interesting that God always throws that in there, not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. And here's my my very maybe non-technical thought. I think God throws that in there just to remind them, and all the rest of the commandments too, and this one, that doesn't seem to make nearly as much sense, have nearly as much weight to you. You do it because I said it. I see that as kind of a catch-all term. And everything else that I say too. 
Moses writes down these laws, and God himself writes the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, is how it's in Hebrew there, on those tablets. So God made the first tablets and wrote on them. Second time, Moses made the tablets and God wrote on them. So this is the, this is the climax of Exodus. Israel has not just escaped Egypt. They've also escaped their own sin as God shows them mercy at Mount Sinai. Likewise, we can only be restored to God if you've sinned, if you've failed. You've got to encounter him anew. And in that moment, God's promises are renewed to you. Oh, we love that part. I'm going to claim that promise. I'm going to cross-stitch it on a pillow and hang it on the wall and tattoo it on my neck so I'll never forget that God promises. Okay, yes, but so are his commandments renewed in those moments. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you chafe at that word, do you truly love Jesus? It is way too common for dynamic worship and dynamic prayer and wonderful meetings and the presence of the Spirit to be separated from obedience to Christ. It is my experience that some people that are the most enthusiastic in their song and in their prayer and in their time at church are, are some of the most licentious in their own lives and the words they use and the, the people they associate with and their sexuality as if they feel that because I come to church and I leap and I sing and I dance and I cry, that kind of covers me for the week. That really should not be so. There's nothing wrong with exuberance in worship. There is something wrong with using it as a replacement for obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you spend time claiming God's promises, and hey, do that. It's good to claim God's promise. Lord, you said over and over again, They'll do that in the Bible. You said, Lord, that if we do this, that you would do that. You should spend an equal amount of time claiming God's commandments for your life. Lord, you said to do this, therefore I'm going to do it. You said, let no unwholesome speech come out of my mouth, but only that which is good for edification. Therefore, Lord, I claim that I'm not cussing anymore. Because you said it, Lord. You said that the marriage bed be undefiled. Therefore, I'm not cheating on my spouse, Lord, because you said I claim that today. we got to get in the habit of doing that. God's grace is forgiving and it's restoring because he will by no means clear the guilty. You have to come to God and find his restoration and his grace and his forgiveness. It's always there, but you better come get it. You better come get it. If you don't, he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. So are you seeking God's glory? Maybe you're singing those songs. Go show me your glory, Lord. Please show the Shekinah glory of God here. All right, well, are you a clean vessel who's prepared to receive the fullness of his power? It's important to know what we call positional righteousness. This is what we've been going over in Romans, that salvation is by grace through faith. Not of works, right? It's not what you've done. It's called positional righteousness. You are righteous because God said so. That's absolutely essential and non-negotiable. But James reminds us that positional righteousness that is not lived out in practical righteousness is useless. In fact, he says, can that kind of faith save anybody? The kind of faith that says, I believe in Jesus, but don't ask me to do anything else. He says, it's useless. Faith without works is dead. When you truly encounter God, the thought of sin becomes so repulsive that it changes you. I just can't. I might want to, but I just can't because I can't get that image out of my mind of what God has done. 
But if you persist in sin, it will quench the Spirit of God. It'll pour water on the fire. You've got to continue in obedience. The glory of the Lord will diminish around you, and your ability to encounter Him will fail because you are full of sin. People were weeping and crying out to God in the temple in Ezekiel's day, but then God shows them the rest of the temple, that they weren't just crying out to God, they were crying out to Marduk, and they were crying out to the images on the wall, the cherubim that had been sewn and carved there, and they were worshiping the sun as it rose. So God goes, what, you think I'm going to hear your prayers? And the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. So all lust and anger your selfishness, your laziness, your gluttony, your pride. It's got to be broken in his presence or you will encounter a limit on your ability to see him. The more you let go of those things, the more your eyes are clear to see the Lord. It was Naaman's joy when he was healed of his leprosy to give gifts to Elisha. Elisha said no. His servant came out and and lied and, and said, hey, Elisha needs a few things. He wanted to keep it for himself. But I, I'm focusing on Naaman's attitude. He says he gratefully gave him all kinds of things. Because he said, after everything that the Lord did for me, I'm not holding anything back from him. David at the threshing floor of Arana, he said, I'd like to buy your threshing floor and sacrifice to the Lord. And he says, well, it's for the Lord. You can have it, David. And David said, no, I will not offer anything to the Lord that does not first cost me something. Don't come to the Lord if you have no intention of obeying the Lord. He will restore you, but he will restore you to obedience. He will restore you to fellowship with him, which involves obedience. Verse 29 through 35, here's another strange portion of scripture. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So this is 40 more days of prayer and fasting up on the mountain. And he comes down with the tablets. First of all, Moses' body would have changed. This has been just about 80 days plus whatever it took to get the golden calf thing worked out. He would have lost some weight here. God sustained him on that mountain. But I don't think Moses was rocking any baby fat at this point. But not only that. The skin of his face shone. This is our fourth point. It was a luminous reflection of God's presence. Now, here's something really weird. The word for shone is the word karan in Hebrew, and it's related to the word for horn. Like for something to be shining, that word can also read to be horned, to have horns coming out of its head. 
Which is why, if you see the famous statue Michelangelo made of David, Moses has horns. Maybe you've wondered about that because the older translation said that Moses was horned. He did not realize that there were horns on his head when he came down. Most likely, this is referring to the shining face and the beams coming out. Like you, you picture a light beam coming out. So it's, you remember the Statue of Liberty has the spikes coming out of her head, right? Well, that's supposed to be like a halo effect, right? It looks like it's horns, but it's not. It's supposed to represent the light shining from around her halo. So it's the same idea. However, there is a very small possibility that Moses' face was in fact disfigured in some way. But whatever it was, and it, it's almost certain that he's talking about his face shining, Aaron and the others were terrified. Oh, here comes Moses. And Moses is shining like an angel of God. Apparently this didn't happen the last time. face was shining and it says they all ran from him. Uh-uh. <laughs> I'm not talking to that guy. No way. Not only have you survived 40 days and nights with no food or water twice now, and the last time you came down, you, you put things to rights. Your face is shining. And he was obliged to veil his face after he declared the word of the Lord. And this became the pattern, that Moses would wear a veil over his face all the time. So you need to, you need to picture this as you think of all these coming stories, that Moses' face was veiled. Then he would go into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. He would remove the veil. He would come out to declare what God had told him, which we're going to read in Leviticus and Numbers and so on. And then he would put the veil back over his face. The only person that ever spoke to Moses face to face again was God himself or the people when Moses was speaking the words of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 3.13, Paul refers to this passage. He says, Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And he compares it to the Old and New Covenant. And a common opinion is that Moses would be in the presence of the Lord and his face would shine and then the shining would fade. That's only gotten from 2 Corinthians 3. When I read that, I think what Paul is talking about is not that Moses' face was fading, but that the old covenant that he represented was coming to an end. You can read that in, on your own, but it sure seems to me, based on what this passage tells us, that Moses was permanently transfigured by his time in the presence of the Lord. In any case, that is what happens when you see God. You are changed, and everybody else knows it. When you pursue God and find Him, everything changes. You become detached from the rest of the world. Your relationships change. How do you think Moses' relationship with his wife was after this? His own brother was scared to talk to him. How about his children? How about all these other people that were so comfortable around him? And his face is shining like the sun. Even with the veil over his face, you probably would be able to see his features as it's shown through the cloth. Your pursuits and your pastimes will change. Do you think a man whose face was shining with the glory of the Lord would be able to spend time in the, in the pursuits of other men? Now Moses was still a man and he still had 40 years of life left. But I think you get the point, don't you? You'd remember, oh yeah, my face is shining. I, I can't just go out and watch the game like everybody else. Your language will change. When Moses spoke, he was speaking as one whose face was shining with the glory of God. You better watch your words, Moses. In fact, it's his words that are going to get him in trouble later. Your habits, your priorities, they all change. When you come to know the Lord and people won't recognize you and might not want to be around you as much, 
Consider the great men of God. There's a lot of strange people from a worldly perspective. They seem so detached and not like everybody else. Like John the Baptist. He lived in the desert. His hair was long. His beard was long. He ate bugs and honey. He would have been skinny as a rail too, by the way. He had a reputation for fasting. He was a harsh preacher. They could only stand him for a couple years until his head was chopped off. What about Paul, who gave up everything and kept on going back to these places where they were trying to beat him to death? What about Elijah, who spent time in the desert being fed by birds? You don't think he was a little weird after all that? Just spending a year or more in the desert being fed by ravens and drinking from the brook? And then he goes out and he spends time with his widow and her son in a culture that's not his own. And then he comes back and God calls fire down from heaven through him. This would have been a strange man from our perspective. What about Stephen? Stephen, it says, when he stood before the Sanhedrin to give a defense of his, of his ministry, his face was like a face of an angel. I don't know what that exactly means, but it's probably supposed to call us back to this story. They're like, this man has been with God. And then he's sit there preaching. They're angry at him. And then he looks up at the sky and sees the Lord and says, I can see Jesus in heaven. And they stoned him to death. And what about churches? What about guys like Athanasius that lived in the desert for years and years on end by themselves? What about Martin Luther? Look at his life. That was a strange guy. There's stuff about him we don't like very much. But God needed a battering ram, and so he grabbed this German monk. All right, we're going to break this thing up. I'll need this guy. About William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. We're going to reorganize our ministry like an army. <laughs> we're going to have ranks. We're going to call each other general and colonel. And we're going to march to the streets with drums. And we're going to sing military songs as we evangelize. That's kind of strange. But all the hippies that got saved in the Jesus movement, they kind of seem not of this world, don't they? Because they weren't of this world. They were in such close communion with God that the rest of us in our normal lives looked at them and said, something's just like off with you. But everybody that knew them knew they had been with God. Are you prepared to pay the price of the knowledge of God? Socially, personally, emotionally? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, God had shown him heaven. So to keep him from being proud, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We think this is probably some kind of chronic illness Paul was given to remind him not to be boastful because he had seen heaven. He paid the price for it. That's why so many, can I just say it again? This is why so many weird people see God's power in miraculous ways. Because they don't care about that stuff. They don't care about their pride or their reputation. They're willing to go there. And so God can use them. So the rest of us, the normies of this world, we've got to learn to get over ourselves. If we want to see the glory of God, there will be a fleshly price to pay. But it'll be worth it. So now we come to the end of this chapter. The people are free. They've made their covenant with the Lord. They've been restored after their sin. The exodus, you can say, is now truly complete. The only thing that remains is to assemble the tabernacle, which we will read next time, and then they can move forward. Moses had this incredible encounter with God's glory, and I tell you that the same is open to you and to me. An audacious request, a glorious revelation, a gracious restoration, and a luminous reflection. 
the possibilities are greater for you and for me. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The best is yet to come. There is even greater glory awaiting in heaven when we will see God face to face. No more veil, no more hiding in the cleft of the rock. You're going to see God as he is. And John says, I don't know what that says about us, but we know that it's true. And I just can't wait to see what it is. Are you willing to step out and see God to obey his commandments and be forever changed? Because that's what it means to see the glory of the Lord. And it can't happen in, in drive through church. Just come in and, and knock it out. Oh, I didn't see God's glory today. Okay, I guess we'll move on. No, no, no. You've got to give up everything. It requires all of it on the altar, waiting on him. And if our generation, which is just as sinful and just as desperate as that of Moses desires a restoration of our relationship to God, then we, as God's people, his representatives, the church, must do whatever is necessary to intercede for them. We must seek God's face and not just his hand, giving up everything to follow him, bearing the consequences, whatever they may be. If our face is shining like the sun and nobody wants to come around anymore, if we can save those of our generation, it will be worth it. And it all starts with a desperate desire for the person of God paired with a holy impertinence that won't take no for an answer, but grabs hold of the hem of his garment and says, Lord, show me your glory.